Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of Schoolhouse Equity in Education. I am your host, Allison R. Brown, Executive Director of the Communities for Just Schools Fund, or CJSF, where we provide resources and support to community-based organizations that are working to ensure equity in their schools. Go to www.cjsfund.org to subscribe to our e-newsletter. If you're tweeting, follow me at Allison R. Brown and tweet about the show with the hashtags C4JS with the number four or Communities for Just Schools again with the number four. Today, on this first episode of Schoolhouse, we are recognizing the brutal reality that people of color, particularly Black and Latino people, face every day in simply going about their lives. We've witnessed the recent killings of Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, and Alva Brazil, Black men killed by police. We've seen other instances as well of disturbing police interactions with Black and Brown communities in this country. We're talking today with Hiram Rivera and a student member of the Philadelphia Student Union, PSU. Her name is Kyla. She's a 16-year-old junior in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. PSU is building power among young people in Philadelphia to demand a high-quality educational experience for all students. You can get more information about PSU at phillystudentunion.org and follow them at 215-STUDENT-UNION on social media. Hiram, thank you so much for being with us on Schoolhouse today, and thank you, Kyla, for joining us as well. Thank you for having us. So, Hiram, why don't we start with you? I I mentioned all that we've seen in the news about policing and the systems of criminal justice and policing as they impact on communities of color, and we bear witness to killings of black and brown people in the streets. Yet young people also face abuse at the hands of a broken system of policing inside their schools. And, you know, we all may recall the young woman who was brutally ripped from her seat in her classroom by a school resource officer at Spring Valley High School in South Carolina when she did not put her cell phone away. Or the Latina student who was viciously slammed to the ground on her face by a school resource officer in Texas because it seemed as if she was going to get into a fight. Philadelphia recently experienced a similar incident. Hiram, will you tell us about that? Yes. On May 5th, one of our student union members, Brian Burney, uh, was involved in a situation with a school police officer at his school in Benjamin Franklin High School. Mm -hmm. Brian, the last period of school, was attempting to go to the bathroom. And in his school, uh, the bathrooms are locked all day and you need special permission to go to the bathroom. That's not a district-wide policy. Uh, the locking of bathrooms is something that individual principals decide for their own schools for their own reasons. On this day, Brian was met with a school police officer who wouldn't let him go to the bathroom unless he had a pass. Brian has documented medical conditions and, and, and medical history that the school knows about that require him to go to the bathroom more often than, than not. An argument ensued because Brian didn't have a pass the officer wouldn't let him go to the bathroom. In frustration, Brian slammed a orange that he had against the wall. The officer then, according to Brian, then rushed him with both fists clenched, hit Brian in the face, slammed him on the floor, and started choking him on the floor. At that point, the students who were in the hallway were gathering once the argument started happening. I started yelling at the officer to get off of him. 
another PSU member started recording the incident. Brian is about five foot four, weighs about 150 pounds, if that. This officer is well over six feet, well over 200 pounds plus. The incident was recorded on video and then was uploaded to Facebook where uh, the rest of the folks in Philadelphia um, and the school district were able to see it. So what is PSU's role in addressing an incident like that? So Philadelphia Student Union exists to give students voice. We organize high school students around education issues and education being a broad term, may encompassing anything that has to do with or inside of the school buildings, the school system. Mm-hmm. And so policing is an issue that we have worked on for a number of years in terms of like training school police officers, getting mm-hmm. discipline codes changed, reducing the number of instances that school police can be called in to handle matters such as this. Mm-hmm. Our role, of course, with Brian being one of our leaders, and Brian's been a member of PSU for about three years, was to go in and make sure that his rights were being defended that justice was going to be served and that the police officer wasn't going to get off um, with, with abusing a student. Mm-hmm. We hear these stories all the time from students. We hear the verbal abuse at the hands of school police officers. We hear about physical abuse at the hands of school police officers. We hear mm-hmm. about the sexual harassment of female students at the hands of school police officers. And unlike police officers out in the city, out in the neighborhood, out in the streets, there are no mechanisms that exist to hold those police officers accountable. I mean, the students don't have anywhere where they can file official complaints against school police officers. Mm -hmm. School police officers um, sometimes are part of your local police department or sometimes like Philadelphia, they're their own separate, their own separate thing. They have individuals with some police training, Mm -hmm. but are not police department employees. And so they're held to a different standard, a different set of accountability or no accountability, right, um, as we see inside of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And so our role was, once we found out about what happened to Brian, was to uh, get him support. Um, Brian went to the hospital. The medical staff at the uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia said that he had suffered a concussion. Right. Um, he was busy for a few days. He was not feeling well. And uh, we wanted to make sure that he was okay. We got the students organized. There were students in Ben Franklin who, who saw what happened, who were frustrated about what happened, who were tired of those types of abuses happening in their school, got together and started protesting, got petitions, and went to the school district to demand justice for Brian. And not just justice for Brian in that specific event, but also some systemic changes that we wanted to see to ensure that this type of thing doesn't happen again in any school in Philadelphia. Kyla, what is the role? I know that Philadelphia Student Union really is focused on centering young people and leveraging the power of young people to change the systems and the environments that impact on them. So how how are you leading as a as a young person in school and how do you see leadership of young people as important for the work for system reform? You know, I met with our superintendent, Dr. Height, and we gave him me and two other students gave him our list of demands. I've spoken at other big rallies and stuff like that for PSU. And I think that, you know, with situations like what happened to Brian, it's important for people to hear the voices of the young people who are experiencing things like this, you know? In my opinion, it means more to have a student, someone who's, like, in this, in these schools and in schools where things like this happen. It's important for their voice to be heard because they're experiencing it firsthand. And also, people need to know that young people have the power to make change and have voices and have opinions. You know, one of the things that I have been thinking about a lot is 
the growing movement that we see for black lives and for equity, racial equity in particular, you know, I think that folks don't quite understand the significant challenges that black and brown students face in schools when they go into the school environment and they're faced with um, police and police equipment who are, you know, really kind of directing their law enforcement perspective at the young people in the building rather than protecting them from external factors, implicit bias in the classroom and elsewhere with, um, you know, the educators who maybe don't have high expectations of their academic outputs or social abilities, um, the, you know, crumbling infrastructure and facilities, all of that is really indicative of larger systemic issues in society and uh, really, to me, speak to a need to center schools and education and young people in the current movements for justice. What do you all think about that? Hiram, what, what are your thoughts about how we center young people and, and schools in current movements for justice? I think the centering of young people is extremely important in these in these current movements. And to be clear, when we say young people, uh, we're talking about high school age, 14 to 19 years old. Uh, those are folks who we work with. Oftentimes, young people's reserved for for folks who are in grad school. If you're talking about the current the current movement that's happening, when it comes to issues like this, I think it's extremely important because, like like Kyla said, right, these these young people do have voices. They do have solutions to the problems that they're living. And unlike adults, they are the ones who actually have to live through a lot of these policies and live through a lot of stuff that's happening inside of schools. Yeah. If you're talking about the broader movement around the issue of policing, I think that uh, young people play an extremely important role because unlike most people, right, they are in contact with policing almost 24-7. Mm-hmm. Right? They spend about eight hours a day, six to eight hours a day in school buildings with police. In some schools, depending on what school you go to, way more police than you do as counselors, right? And then when you leave those buildings, you have the police outside of your community and neighborhood. And mm-hmm. So for a lot of young people, they are never in situations, or at least very rarely, in situations where they are not in close proximity to police. And so I think they, better than most, mm-hmm. can speak to what that feels like, to speak to the issues of police abuses. And not just police abuses, of what that does to their own psyche, mm-hmm. what that does to their own uh, lived experiences and conditions that they have to go to school and live in, right? When you're constantly being watched, you're constantly being observed, you're constantly in the presence of a police officer, sometimes armed, sometimes not, mm-hmm. who more likely than not, and more often than not, unfortunately, is looking at you as a potential threat, as a potential criminal, right? Mm-hmm. Especially when we're talking about black students, when we're talking about students who go to um, needy schools, right, uh, impoverished schools, this is what they have to face. And so if you want to understand what that feels like and what impacts that has on the way you see yourself as a young person, mm-hmm. on your academics, on the way you look at your future possibilities, right, and, mm-hmm. and the life that you're going to have, then it's really important that you that you speak to them. And also, if you want to find solutions and find out what is necessary, talk to the young people. I think organizations like PSU and the many youth organizations around the country have for over two decades shown that high school-age young people do have the capacity and the know-it-all to make very important changes. 
to win campaigns and to run uh, campaigns that win significant policy reforms. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't think we should dismiss that. I think that we should also acknowledge that it has also been these young people uh, for over two decades who have been fighting this fight against police in schools, who have been fighting the fight around police abuses. Unfortunately, due to their age, due to their, their race, that over two decades long worth of, of fighting mm-hmm. um, oftentimes gets dismissed or ignored unless you are inside of those youth organizing circles. Right? And I think that it's even ignored even within this current movement that's happening today. Um, you know, we have the issue like the issue in Dallas, Texas, and, and folks are really upset and shocked yeah. at the use of military style weapons. Yeah. Right? They get shocked at the use of tanks and, and armored vehicles. The youth organizing groups, the folks in the Labor Between Strategy Center in Los Angeles, right, uh, for one, Power U in Miami, mm-hmm. another, have been fighting the demilitarization of police for over two years now, right? I'm um, trying to bring an end to the 1033 program that gives police departments these, these military grade weapons. And so I think the role that young people play, specifically high school age young people, is extremely important. And that's the role, the work that they had put in already for countless years yeah. would be extremely beneficial uh, to the current movement today. To expound a bit on what you just said, Hiram, the militarization of police is happening in, in school police as well, so that we're seeing school police with military equipment. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, LAUSD had armored vehicles. Um, I think mm-hmm. in Miami they had grenade launchers. In Los Angeles, they had grenade launchers. Like, why do school districts need, and school police need grenade launchers and armored vehicles? Kyla, you know, what do you think about really kind of centering education, schools, and young people in current movements, you know, movement for black lives, movements for racial and social justice? What are your thoughts about that? I think that it's essential for any change to happen to have the people who would be experiencing that change be a part of it, you know. I also think it's important for young people to know what's going on in their communities and if, you know, they don't like it, know that they can do something about it and have people to support them in whatever it is that they're doing, whatever it is that they're fighting. You know, like my friends and I, like my cousins and I have discussions about stuff like this all the time because, like, this is, you know, like, it affects us, like, it affects me as a young black woman in this country, it affects me because I have like my entire half of my family is um, black, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's important for people to have conversations about it and it's extremely important for young people to be a part of um, the movement for change when they're the ones that, you know, are going to be experiencing it the most if it doesn't change. At the outset, Hiram, you mentioned when you were talking about Brian who was assaulted by the school resource officer there in Philadelphia. You mentioned that he was going to the bathroom, that the bathrooms are locked as a matter of policy in that school. That is a shocking condition and doesn't actually make common sense. I just remember a conversation that we were part of, Hiram, where you were talking about the tendency for policy folks and funders and others to really try to be very siloed in their approaches or, or who are are just that by nature. So, you know, there are funders and policymakers and others who are very focused on school discipline and exclusionary school discipline and the school to prison pipeline as a means of addressing inequity in education. 
And you said very poignantly that, yes, discipline is absolutely important, but also the realities are that that bathrooms are locked, right? And that there are other conditions in the school environment that are contributing to inequitable circumstances for young people. So I, I wonder if you would just, just talk to us a little bit about what are some of those other conditions in schools that your young people are confronting? The main one that students in Philadelphia are confronting, and, and, and colleagues speak to this you know, better than I can, is the issue of budget cuts. The amount of cuts to the Philadelphia school system in the past three, four years has devastated the schools. Mm-hmm. And so let's take Franklin and, and the issue of, of the bathrooms being closed. In 2013, the Philadelphia School District closed 24 high schools. Mm-hmm. Two of those schools that were closed were then merged with Benjamin Franklin High School. In 2013, Benjamin Franklin High School had about 450 students. Mm-hmm. By 2014, Benjamin Franklin's student body had risen to up to about 900 students. My goodness. The number of faculty, the number of staff, counselors, teachers, nurses, all did not increase to the point or, or to, the, to the levels necessary to provide a safe and uh, adequate learning environment for the students in that building. Mm-hmm. There's no heat, there is no air conditioning in the summertime. Mm-hmm. Most of the water fountains are undrinkable, and the buildings, you know, across the district, many of them are falling apart because they're, they're close to 100 years old. So what you have here is situations where the district, because it's facing these, these budgetary needs, mm-hmm. and it's a man-made crisis, that we are a state-controlled school district. The state of Pennsylvania took over the Philadelphia School District because of budget cuts. At the time, the budget crisis was $80 million. The school district was in a deficit of $80 million. Mm-hmm. The school district now, at its peak, mm-hmm. had a deficit of about $400 million under mm-hmm. state control. That's not the state of Pennsylvania? Yes, yes, that's yes. just the Philadelphia yes. School, oh, that's district. school District. That's the school district, yes. And so in, in a school like, like Benjamin Franklin, at Benjamin Franklin, you had budget cuts, and you had staff cuts. So they cut nurses, they cut counselors, and they cut noontime pay. These were adults who were in the building to help out with non-academic matters. Mm-hmm. And so because you don't have the adequate number of adults and staff in the building, what you end up having is school police playing the roles that these noontime aides used to do, right? So the justification for having police in schools is that they're there to protect students from extreme violence, mm-hmm. weapons, Massive brawls where people's lives are, are in serious danger, right? And drugs. What you see them now is that school police are now being involved and used to handle minor offenses or anything that doesn't deal with academic curriculum or any academics in the building, right? Mm-hmm. And so now school police are bathroom monitors. They're hall monitors. Mm-hmm. School police are walking around in the cafeteria, right? Making sure people are sitting down. And you create this prison-like environment. And so Brian, was at the school when it was about 400 students. He was at the school when it went to 900 students. But he was still at the school when school police, but now because they have nothing else to do, because of budget cuts, mm-hmm. are involved in these minor infractions and have the responsibilities of hall monitors. Right? The thing is that school police are trained to do one thing. They're there to look for criminals, just like the police. Right? The police are only trained to view everyone as a potential criminal. In school... Right? They look at the students as potential threats, as potential criminals. Everything becomes a criminal matter at that point. Once you engage with a school police officer, everything becomes 
a criminal matter. Mm-hmm. It's now becoming just a regular school issue. And this is where Brian got caught up. And not just Brian, but the many other students who haven't had their assaults videotaped, be they verbally or physically, right? Yeah. The young man who videotaped it was um, taken away by the school police himself. The school police attempted to erase the video off his phone and threatened to arrest him for the videotape and the assault that was happening on Brian. Like, these are the realities that our young people are going to the school in. And they come as a direct result of the budget cuts and the state takeovers, the school closures, and ultimately the privatization of our school districts that are having extremely negative impacts on those students who live in predominantly black communities and who go to poor schools. Kyla, you know, many of the things that Hiram just laid out that the school police are involved in are not actual crimes. So... Yes, police are trained to target people and to to focus on people as potential criminals according to criminal codes that have been written for adult behaviors that are harmful to themselves or other people. The things that we've asked school police to do, that school police are doing in schools, are not actual crimes. So, Kyla, what kinds of things have you seen police in schools involved in that they have either arrested students for or um, otherwise engaged with young people around? A big part of this kind of conversation is, especially pertaining to Philadelphia schools, is that the way police treat the students and carry out their job is very different in neighborhood schools like Benjamin Franklin and in magnet schools like Central. And this is an ongoing conversation about the discrepancies in the way things are handled. Mm-hmm. At Central, what happened to Brian, the likelihood that you would see something like that is very, very slim. Mm. The worst it gets is probably officers having an attitude or talking to you disrespectfully when there's absolutely no need for them to be disrespectful. One of the things that I've talked about before is that you know, you have Brian being assaulted for trying to use the bathroom without a hall pass. And at Central, mm-hmm. kids can go through the scan machine or don't have to skip the scan machine mm-hmm. if they know the security guard who's doing that job that morning. The relationship between students and officers is very, very different mm-hmm. at Central than it is at Franklin, which, you know, creates this whole other level of problems and this whole other thing that needs to be addressed because the way students are treated needs to be equal across the board, like across the district. It can't, like what what happens at Central and what happens at Franklin, it shouldn't be that different. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that either thing should happen at all, but police officers should be treating students equally no matter what school they're at, and that's not happening. And Kyla, what is the difference between the, the two schools? What are What is different about the student populations, about the neighborhoods? What's different that is really kind of encouraging that or perpetuating that? different treatment. The majority of the students at Franklin are black while at Central. And Central is noted as the most diverse high school in the nation, mm-hmm. um, which, I don't know, could have a, a different kind of impact on this whole situation depending on which way you look at it, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think also because at Central you have supportive administration who allow you to, you know, express yourself and talk about things and I was able to organize this employee in my school because my principal thought it was a good idea. Mm-hmm. You know, we're able to talk about these things and have these discussions and, you know, and do these things because of, quote-unquote, like the type of students that we are. You know, they trust us at Central, and there is no difference except for the school that you're going to. You know, the only difference between me and Brian is that I go to Central and he goes to Franklin. 
and that he's a guy and I'm a girl, you know, like yeah. the, the kind of very, the differences between the students are essentially like that, just where you go to school. So, you know, why there's, it's just like stigmas attached to students that are going to Franklin versus kids that are going to Central, you know, like they think that I'm going to be successful because I go to Central, but somebody else could think that's not going to happen and Brian because he goes to Franklin, which isn't the case at all. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, just it has to do with race, obviously, and class and so many, so many other things that, you know, perpetuate stereotypes like that. What advice would you give to community organizations like PSU, to government agencies, to funders, researchers, others who are thinking and talking a lot right now about racial justice broadly, about criminal justice a little more narrowly, about policing. What advice would you give to folks who are thinking about these issues and are wondering what to do? To listen to the people who are, you know, feeling however they're feeling about what's going on or experiencing what's going on, you know. I think that also recognizing that everybody has their own opinion and has their own take on what what happens in the world and what is happening, especially right now. I think that it's important to especially listen to the young people like we kind of talked about, like this sort of ongoing theme with this discussion is that like young people have a voice and what they say matters because you need them for things to change and they're the people that are going to be experiencing whatever adults are making decisions, you know, right now. Like, whoever becomes the president of the United States is going to affect me because of how old I am and the fact that I'm going to college in two years. So I think that it's important for people just to know that students and young people have a voice and that what they say matters and to use that to their advantage, you know. So when, like, what PSU does is, you know, organize rallies and the students talk. And I think that's something that should be, that other people should do. And I'm sure there are other people doing it. But I think it's important to recognize that aspect of it and that this, there is this voice that is oftentimes missing from conversations mm-hmm. about racial justice. I often say that storytelling is one of our greatest tools for change. And I think it's important that we tell stories and ask for stories and listen to stories without exploiting, without tokenizing, especially young people, which I think too often happens. So I I wonder if if one of you would share a story about one of the, the greatest successes that you've seen in doing the work that you do. Hiram or Kyla? The first thing that happened in my head was our meeting with the superintendent where we talked to him about, we gave him a list of six demands to deal with what happened to Brian. And he agreed to five out of six of demands, of the demands that we came in with, but the one that he didn't agree to was firing the officer that assaulted Brian, which I guess when I just say that doesn't really sound like a success story, but um, we were all obviously upset by them not agreeing to fire the officer Mm -hmm. just because of, you know, we all know Brian and just we believe what he had to say and Mm -hmm. It is, you know, there's a lot of emotions when he said that, but the fact that he was able to agree to five of the six things that he wanted him to do was definitely, like, really awesome that that happened, and I don't think that, at least I wasn't expecting that to happen. I wasn't really expecting him to agree to much of it, so Mm -hmm. getting the majority of our demands met or agreed to be met was pretty awesome. 
What were those five things? The six demands were the firing of Officer Makioka, a public condemning of the use of physical force against students by the school district, a disinvestment in policing by the school district and reinvesting in things like nurses and counselors, the reduction of number of uniformed police inside of school buildings, the creation of a complaint system, an official complaint system mm-hmm. where students can file complaints against school police officers if they feel their rights have been have been abused or violated, mm-hmm. and to make public the standards and protocols that school police are supposed to follow inside of the school building. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, that was not public information, and we we're fighting for that. And so like Kyla said, five out of the six demands were met. The only one that wasn't met was the firing of Officer Makioka. Mm-hmm. The Office of School Safety, which is a school police for the district, ran an investigation of the school police and found that the school police didn't do anything wrong mm-hmm. in, in this incident. We can see, right, where, where school police mirrors much in the same way, you know, what happens out in the streets, and, and especially in these cases of, of the... Uh, the police murders that have happened throughout the country. I certainly think that, you know, despite the fact that the police officer was not fired and that there was evidence of a concussion and, and real injury to Brian, you know, the work that you all did with Philadelphia Student Union to take those demands, to they were very well-formed demands, and to take them to the superintendent and to win on five of those six demands is, is a tremendous victory. And It's a victory certainly for Philadelphia schools and for the young people there. It's also a victory for young people and organizations all over the country who will be looking to you all for a model of of what to do and how to combat the the systems that that they encounter every day. So congratulations to you all on that, that work, and thank you for doing what you do. Thank you. Thank you. You know... We hear a lot about police and um, what a difficult job police have in any environment, in in communities, in schools. It's not something that certainly I would want to do every day. And so the question is really about trust between community and police. And for those young people who are in schools where they are being policed and where there is a heavy police presence, is that cultivating um, distrust of police and perpetuating the divide between communities of color and police? I think that when you have situations like what happened to Brian and then nothing happens to the officer, that's, in my opinion, definitely perpetuating the distrust between young people of color and police. I think that this, the uniform that police wear is usually this barrier, you know. It somehow makes them people who don't have to abide by the law and are not human anymore because they're wearing this uniform that gives them so much power when it shouldn't. I think especially, you know, in light of the things that have happened just in this past week, you know, you would, you would think that all of this stuff happening would make officers more careful and more conscious about what's going on, but it kind of makes me ask the question is like, oh, so many officers are getting away with it. Is that like why it keeps happening? Like, do they think that it's okay because people are getting away with it? And those are just kind of like questions that I start to think about. But I think that the fact that 
the Black Panther Party was saying the same things that we're saying now back in the 60s, it was definitely perpetuating, you know, this barrier between officers and people of color because there is no place for trust, for me at least. Mm-hmm. At this point in time, there is no place for, for me to trust an officer to be able to protect me or protect anyone in my family because there's nothing showing me that I have ever done that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I echo those statements. I think that since their inception, right, the prison never created to protect black people mm-hmm. or the poor. I think they were created to do the exact opposite, right? And that's not just driving away, that's historical fact. I think in terms of school, for a lot of our young people, and I say young people, I'm talking about black and Latino students, their first contact, their first interactions with the police, and most of the time negative interactions mm-hmm. happen inside of school. Yeah. Right? This is where they begin to be verbally abused. This is where the, the process of trying to break them into following order, right, and bowing down to the authority that, that the police project starts happening inside of schools. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, what they don't ever see is this mutual respect, this mutual accountability, so that if a student does something wrong, they are punished, and they are punished to, to the extremes of possibilities in most of our struggling schools. When a school police officer does something wrong, and again, remember, these individuals are not police officers. Right? So the accountability is mm-hmm. very different. The training is very different. Most of the time, the training is, is lacking. Right? When those folks do something wrong, they're never held accountable. And so when you grow up seeing that and then you see it out in the streets, when you have these situations where the police can investigate themselves to see if one of their own did something wrong, and time after time, even after it's, it's captured on, on video, be it the murders in, in New Orleans or the, or the murders in Ferguson or across the country, or even Brian being choked on the floor by 200-plus pound men, mm-hmm. and then we're told that we didn't see what our eyes showed us, no, there's no room and there's no possibility ever to have trust created between our communities, our students, and the police. Yeah. I, I, you know, ultimately believe that police, police and schools do not de-escalate situations. They end up agitating and increasing these situations into bigger problems than, than what they intentionally set it out to be. If Brian was just allowed to go to the bathroom, like a human being, yeah. and had his human right respected, uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation in the first place. Mm-hmm. But because his human right wasn't respected because this individual just didn't want to allow him to do that, we end up in a situation that we're in. One piece to add to this unfortunate story with Brian mm-hmm. that is that at the time this happened, the state audit general didn't audit of the Philadelphia school district. Mm-hmm. One, he found that the level of budget crisis and the, and the deficit that the school district had is at a point where he wasn't sure if it would be ever able to get out of that deficit. Mm-hmm. Two, what he found was that of the school police officers who were interviewed, 48% of them did not have the proper background checks mm-hmm. and training to legally be in buildings with young people. What? How is that possible? There is no accountability for that at the hands of the school district, the superintendent who hired those individuals, right, our school board who finalizes all that stuff. It came and it went. No one was let go. No one was released. No one was held accountable for that. So half of the school security staff, the police that are in schools. Of the folks who were interviewed. So in 2011, mm-hmm. from since 2011, 2012, up until now, mm-hmm. 71 new officers have been hired. Mm-hmm. Of those folks, 48% of them didn't have the proper background check or training certification to legally be inside of buildings with schools. That is incredible. A quote from the state auditor general himself was that 
to be on the same baseball field as children, mm-hmm. you need to have all kinds of background checks and credentials. And for some reason, that doesn't apply to our schools. What is the demographic population of the Philadelphia schools, Hiram? It's overwhelmingly black. Mm-hmm. Uh, the numbers in terms of black students, uh, I believe, are over 75%. I appreciate your perspective, and I, I think the 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 argument that schools are a microcosm of what communities are, what society is, and the ways in which we are seeing inequities play out for young people of color in schools today really do speak to that. And so we see elements of policing, we see elements of economic injustice, we see elements of health and mental health services that need to be enhanced for young people in schools. All of that is in the school environment as we're talking about it in different ways in the external community. And if we can address schools and the way that young people are served in schools, then we can really develop some concrete solutions for for dealing with societal ills as well. So I appreciate both of you. Thank you so much for your time. Sadly, we've come to the the end of this episode of Schoolhouse Equity in Education. Hiram Rivera is the executive director of the Philadelphia Student Union, and Kyla is a 16-year-old junior at Central High School in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and a member of the Philadelphia Student Union. Hiram, how can folks find the Philadelphia Student Union online? Um, The website, Twitter handle, Facebook, all of that. You can find us on our website at www.phillystudentunion.org. On Twitter, it's 215studentunion. And it's Philadelphia Student Union on Facebook. We're very active on all three, and and so either of those um, can get you in contact with us. Wonderful. Thank you both so much for joining. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all again for listening in. Remember that you can follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and sign up for the Communities for Just Schools Fund newsletter at cjsfund.org. Next week, we will be joined by Dr. Monique Morris, the executive director of the National Black Women's Justice Initiative in California, and she'll be talking about her new book, Push Out.